Welcome to the A Jesus Church podcast. We're a family seeking to become like Jesus, empowered by His presence to partner in God's creative work of restoring the world. We pray this episode encourages and equips you along the journey. We're all in process, becoming something. Like a potter throwing clay or an artist mixing color, our lives are being formed. Different backgrounds and experiences blemished and cracked. Each day, an opportunity to move into or out of all that God has purposed. So the question isn't if we are becoming, but rather who are we becoming? And in this family, we want to go on the journey of becoming like Jesus. Well, good morning, everyone. How are you doing? Hey, you guys avoided the cold. You seem a little bit more awake. That's awesome. The, you're alive. You're responsive. Like the, the 9 a.m. crowd was just kind of shivering. It was, yeah, good for you guys. You made a good choice. So my name's Richard, uh, one of the pastors here. Hello. If I've not met you, come say hi sometime. And I get to teach this morning on my second favorite part of my favorite gospel. So real privilege for me, really excited to look at this. My favorite part is actually from last week's reading. You know the cards we've been reading together, going through the bits of Luke that we're not doing on Sunday. And the bit we missed was the widow of Nain. Uh, Jesus does this beautiful interaction with this widow. Uh, we did do a podcast on it, though, So, because um, we mentioned this at the beginning of the series. We do, House of Learning does a podcast most weeks. Um, so if you want more Luke and want more Becoming Like Jesus, go find those. Just search for House of Learning wherever you look for podcasts, and you should be able to hear me and guests talking about things. But today, we get this uh, woman who comes to dinner. I, I, I kind of wanted to title this message, What to Do When a Prostitute Invites Herself for Dinner. But... <laughs> We already had the Becoming Like Jesus series, and you know, that kind of made sense. But, but that's the story. And Jesus does something that's one of the like, hardest things for us to wrap our head around at this meal. So it's going to be really exciting. Uh, so we're going to open our Bibles. So if you don't have a Bible, wave your hand in the air. Someone will give you one. If you don't have a Bible, please take it home. We want you to have a Bible, and that's yours to keep. And let's stand together and read God's Word. So in Luke 7, it says this. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for being able to read about the things you did, the things you said, who you are. Lord, affect us with your word today. Holy Spirit, show us how to respond. Guide our hearts, lock us in to the thing that you have that you want to say to us today so that we can walk out these doors different than we came in. So keep us locked in hearing your voice, Jesus. Amen. All right, take a seat. 
So I want us to enter into the scene, sort of use our imagination, kind of paint the picture inside our head of what's happening at this dinner. And so this was a special banquet. This is a normal thing to do, is to kind of have the who's who over. It's a way you showed you were like an honorable, upstanding, important member of the community by having important people over. And these kind of banquets, you would um, have the meal, but they were sort of semi-public. There was room around the outside where people could kind of wander in, stand in the corner, quietly observe what's going on, you know, listen to the important people talking. And so that's the sort of setting that this story is occurring in. And they're, they're sat, at, sat at meal, this Pharisee's invited Jesus over, they're talking about the issues of the day, questioning Jesus, uh, he kind of is the issue of the day. Um, he's shaking things up a little bit. Um, and this woman enters, okay? And she is a publicly known sinner. Her reputation is a notorious sinner. Okay, she's probably a prostitute. Um, so she's the sort of person that's like dirty to be rejected, like considered unclean. And she's carrying in this alabaster jar of perfume, which by the way, that would have cost over a year's wages. So she's probably carrying like her most valuable possession into the room. And uh, just so you know, like the Torah in Deuteronomy, uh, God actually said that the wages of prostitution were not to enter his temple. They were not to be used to buy offerings or give gifts. So there's a sort of uh, Jewish mentality here of like, you're someone that should be kept at a distance. And the fact that she's walking in with a gift is probably already sort of triggering a bunch of Pharisees who are really interested in always doing the right thing to think, get that out of here, okay? We'll have none of that nonsense in this room. So it is super awkward, super uncomfortable for everyone in the room. And not just for everyone when she walks in, but for her. Why walk into the lion's den? Like if you know a group of people are predisposed to judge you, why go for dinner with them? You know, it just, it's just weird. So it's this super awkward setting. She's sort of maybe anticipating being rejected. Everyone's uncomfortable. And then she's at Jesus' feet. And so the way they would do these banquets is they would uh, recline on their side, on their elbow, towards the middle of the table, eating with their feet to the outside, which is kind of weird for us because we don't do that way. But in the ancient world, this was a way that you would... Um, it, it was sort of a, for special banquets to kind of model, we are not under threat, we're at peace, no one's going to arrive with a sword, look how chill we are. So these sort of banquets to set the tone of peace, like they would actually lay that way at the meal table. So I don't want you to have the image of like the prostitute like comes in and like she's on her hands and knees under the table and everyone's like, is there a dog under here? Like what's going on? Like that's not the setting, okay? It's, it's actually even more awkward than that. They can see her at the edge of the room at Jesus' feet and she's crying, okay? And using her tears to wash Jesus' feet. Okay, I don't know if you've ever tried to wash someone's feet with a tear, like one little, like that's not going to do it. You know that that that's not washing feet. Okay, she's weeping, convulsing with tears, highly emotional. Okay, in our Western society of like show no emotion, we already can kind of get the weirdness, right? If we were you know, teaching here and you know, there was a guy in the front row just like weeping his heart out, we would all feel really uncomfortable. Like, that's, that's one of the elements of the uncomfortableness in this room. 
But then she's touching Jesus' feet and washing his feet with prostitute tears and drying his feet and wiping them down with prostitute hair and giving him a kiss of hospitality with prostitute lips. It's all so uncomfortable. And then like anointing his feet with perfume that was bought by a prostitute. And the whole scene playing out in the corner, very distracting, very awkward, and the aroma of the perfume filling the house. And everyone's thinking, what do I do with this? Like, how do I respond to what's going on? Um, And and Simon, the host, a Pharisee, he kind of clocks it. He sees what's going on, okay? And he's thinking in in his head, sorry, yeah, I can see her sin. She's a sinner, okay? And sin, especially her sin, is a reason to reject her. And then he thinks, now, if Jesus was a prophet, he may not be from around here, but if he's a prophet, he would know she was a sinner. Ergo, he would be rejecting her. He would be like, get off, get off, get out of here. Like, no. Okay? And, and Jesus isn't doing that. Uh, you know, so either he's not a prophet or he's not righteous or both. Okay, so Simon's sort of, Uh, processing out what's going on, drawing conclusions. Well, let's read what happens next because it's almost comedic, okay? Carries on in Luke 7. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. So I love this. Simon doesn't say anything. He's thinking in his head. And Jesus then responds as if he could just hear Simon speaking in his head. Talk about showing off some prophet skills. Like, are you a prophet? Like, here, let me profit you a little bit, you know. So it's just so funny that Jesus does that. Um, And he paints this picture, he tells a story, a parable of two people with debt being generously, freely forgiven. One of them owes about eight years wages. The other one, about 10 months wages. But they're both in a hole they can't get out of, okay? One's staring down like a real difficult situation. The the guy who owes eight years wages, probably a life of certain servitude for the rest of his life. But there's a difference, right? Like if I, if I paid off your mortgage and paid off your car loan, like you'd both be like, wow, thank you, that's amazing. But it would mean a little different. There's a, a difference of scale, a difference of interaction, a difference of commitment, right? And Simon's not an idiot. He can tell that. Like the conclusion to the story is really obvious. It's really simple. And so he, he gives the right answer. Okay, and, and I, I love the way he gives the answer as well. There's like a lot of comedy in the way Luke, Luke tells the story. You know, well, I, I suppose, I suppose the one, you know, it's kind of like a 14-year-old boy response. You're like, well, yeah, I guess, yeah, I can kind of see how, you know, your point of view, yeah, I guess I can get it. You know, he's not, he's not, he's not saying, yes, Jesus, absolutely, you're right. Um, he's kind of guarded in his response. And then something really strange happens. Jesus turns to the woman and he's going to continue to talk to Simon okay? because Simon's, he's got the right answer. It's kind of obvious who would be more grateful. 
But what Simon hasn't understood is why she's grateful. He hasn't understood the dynamics of what's going on in her life. And Jesus turns to the woman and puts the spotlight on her. The one who everyone was embarrassed to acknowledge. Everyone was avoiding eye contact with. The, the, the like proverbial elephant in the room. Okay? Puts her center stage. And can you imagine what must have been running through her head at that point? Because she's come into the lion's den, risking so much, like making a complete lemon of herself, okay? She must be wondering, like, am I about to be rejected? Like, am I about to hear words like, yeah, I appreciate the sentiment, but now is not the time. You need to stop. This isn't the place for this. You know, or, or as Jesus actually then focuses everyone's attention on her, is she you know, thinking, oh, but I'm supposed to be in the shadows. Like, I'm ashamed. I'm not supposed to be seen. And Jesus just undoes all of that and focuses on her. And let's read what Jesus says. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has put perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who's this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. No rejection, no shame. Jesus accepts her, affirms her actions. And, and there's, a, there's a twist in here. You see, the way Jesus tells what's going on betrays the fact that she's doing something to make up for what Simon had not done. See, it was customary at a banquet like this that when guests came in, you know, plastered with the dirt from the day, which wearing open-toed sandals around the Middle East will do to you, there would be water available for you to wash your feet. And if you were rich, a servant to do the washing. And you would be offered a kiss of hospitality, a way of welcoming and connecting. And then you'd be given some olive oil, which they used for soap, but also anointing, because it smelled nicer than the crud on your feet from the day. And Simon hadn't done those things. And that wasn't like a rank sin, like he'd broken some law, but Simon's definitely doing hospitality light. Like he's being a bit weird. Like in the UK, this would be equivalent of having you over and not offering you a cup of tea. Okay? It, it, so, so there's a little bit of tension that where Simon's kind of dishonored Jesus. He's treated him poorly. And this woman has seen what's going on and, and come and is dealing with the dishonor, trying to honor Jesus, trying to do something to put things right, to give Jesus what she feels like he deserves. And so now Simon is the one who's ashamed in the room. He's the one who's embarrassed. He's the one who's been shown up which, I mean, even in our culture, okay, if, you know, if I invite you over for dinner and the first words out of your mouth are like, no, this broccoli's kind of soggy. Like, that's, that's a no-no. Like, you don't show up the host. Even more so in this shame-honor cultures where hospitality was such a big deal. 
So the awkwardness level has just gone up another notch. She has been moved by love for Jesus. Like she has risked so much to enter this room, to, to come find Jesus, to honor him. What she's doing is worshiping. She teaches us what worship is. See, to, to worship God is to give him what he deserves, to honor him holistically. We, we offer thanks and praise to value the things we receive from him. We kind of reciprocate with our thanks. We declare our belonging to him, our allegiance, our trust, our love. We give back to God. We, we participate in his ways. We declare and give our availability to him. And we don't just declare intentions and aspirations. We follow through. So it's so often when we're singing, we're declaring an aspiration. We're leaning into an identity, reaching forward for the, the life of worship that we want to see happen that week. Because it, it's about actions. Love is shown in actions. I mean, think about it, okay? If I really liked a girl, and for six months I told her, like, I'd really like to date you, okay? I'd, I'd love to take you on a date. I couldn't, six months later, say, do you know what, I think I'm falling in love with you. That would just be weird. Like, I'd have to go on some dates, okay? And it's the same kind of thing, like the connection between what we sing and pray and declare and what we do. Worship is supposed to be a lifestyle that's to do with our way of life, that our allegiance, trust, giving, belonging, participation in Jesus, all of those things infuse every hour of every day. I remember as a new Christian learning about this. Like, I was doing a job in London at the time. It was really boring working. It wasn't even a mail room. A mail room would have been more interesting, okay? But just reading in Colossians that I could do everything I do as unto God. And you know what? I had the best week. I discovered that some of the most mundane things in my week with a different attitude could actually be offered as worship to Jesus. It helped align my life my whole week. And what we do on a Sunday is beautiful. It's where we get to, together in unity with loads of encouragement, set the thermostat, set the trajectory, okay, lock in, pull it, pull it closer, stand on that ground, but it's supposed to then affect the trajectory we take out the door. And so this woman, her sort of exuberant, generous actions of adoration to Jesus, of worship to Jesus, the way she treated him, lavishing her most costly things, risking so much upon Jesus, teaches us about worship. And the cost part's really, uh, really I was going to say really expensive. It was expensive. What I meant to say was it's really important. Okay? I kept thinking this week, because I've sort of praying for this Sunday about King David in 2 Samuel. He has this great insight to worship. He says, I will not sacrifice to the Lord burnt offerings that cost me nothing. Like, if I'm giving, worshipping out of my leftovers, it's just not worship anymore. So there's some, some insight there that seems really important. We could unpack and talk about worship and costliness and giving, that's another Sunday because we want to get back to this woman. But I wanted us to read that because I feel like that might be for one or two people today.
And so worship costs. And this woman bought so much, risked so much. And Jesus, then, the way he responds, reveals the true nature of her actions. This isn't an attempt to curry favour with Jesus. She's not trying to butter him up to get something. She has already experienced God's favour. She's heard the message of Jesus and responded to it. She has already forgiven. The, the words here are in the past tense. You've already been forgiven. That's why you're here. That's the dynamic in play. She's come to Jesus as someone who has been unburdened, who's experienced God's favour, experienced his love, and has come to worship in gratitude, to, to sort of express some sense of devotion and adoration to Jesus, to come to the one who now means so much to her. And Jesus receives her actions, calls them valuable. And Jesus is clear, what she's doing is loving God and loving him. And he is willing to accept this, even from a prostitute. And Jesus pronounces her reality over her in the middle of this room, okay? In the middle of all the awkwardness and all the tension, he pronounces the actual reality. She's forgiven. She's the one in the right. She's not the villain. She's the hero. She's not the one in the wrong. She's the one that actually we should be exemplifying. Jesus turns the tables on shame because he has this insight, he has this different approach to see what's going on. You see, it turns out Simon was correct. If Jesus was a prophet, he would know what kind of woman she was. And he did, clearly. In, in a deeper way than Simon could have imagined. But what Simon was wrong about was the kind of woman she was, he thought was a reason to reject her. But the righteous prophet does not reject sinners, he rescues them. That's the difference. That's the key difference. Jesus reached out and wanted to draw her close and see her healed. Simon's problem is that he could not imagine a path of healing and redemption for this woman. He thought it was off the table. And the critical words at the end here, her faith has saved her and she can go in peace. She's transformed from this sinner Awkward, shamed, rejected, lost, trapped in darkness to being this person who can now thrive and be safe and experience peace. Now for sure, there's going to be a whole whack load of work for her to do to build a thriving life. But it's a possibility that's alive. It's a trajectory she's been set on. Like her direction, the narrative has changed because she's been forgiven. She entered the room under threat, but she is the only one who leaves that room safe and at peace. Amazing. Now, a key theme, like in our series, the word for today is adoration. And it's really interesting to think, like, how can I grow in that adoration? How can I grow in that worship? Because you can't just flick a switch and decide to love someone more. You can commit to wanting to, but it takes building, it takes a journey, it takes a process of developing that love. And the, there are a million different reasons to love God, but there is one in this story in the foreground, and I really think God wants to, uh, us to interact with it today, and it is this issue of forgiveness. Okay, think about what this woman experienced. When you are not forgiven, 
you carry this burden of guilt and shame, you know deep in your heart that you are worthy of rejection and punishment, that you owe something and you ought to be a recipient of bad things. Affirmation, belonging, closeness, like those things, they become increasingly alien. That's for someone else, not for you. And you carry this burden of making things right. And as if that burden wasn't enough, it's sort of self-destructive cycle because without reconciliation with someone, that thing you offer to try and make things right is really hard to trust. And as long as people continue to treat you in your punish identity, okay, it's going to be almost impossible for you to actually make things right. Like, how can you escape this kind of cycle? And not only that, your own relationship to the good gets warped and twisted. Like, we ought to be able to do good as an act of worship, with joy, something that just helps us swell with, like, yes, just a yes, that aligns us with God, aligns us with truth, aligns us with rightness. But when you're in that punish your identity, that voice of shame in your head breathes over every good act. Yeah, but you're doing this to make up for the bad. You're doing this to make things right. And even your good actions, instead of being worship that brings joy, become a form of self-punishment. Robbed of their value. So tragic. And we find ourselves rejected and anticipating rejection and even hating and rejecting ourselves. Just like trying to separate ourselves from our, our shame self. Life becomes so dysfunctional. We end up with self-shame, frustrated in the cycle of our punished identity, hating our inability to be free. Like, what a dark picture. What a dark, dark picture. And, and just like Adam and Eve in the garden, there's a human reflex to shame. It's to hide in fear. That's what happened, like the moment shame entered the story, Adam and Eve were hiding behind a bush, okay? And we haven't changed. And it makes sense. Shame makes us feel exposed, vulnerable, and the walls go up to protect our shame, the things we're ashamed of, from exposure. And so we build prisons to protect us, and we end up isolated from the very resources we actually need to heal love. See, shame makes vulnerability a bad thing. It makes it something that's dangerous. It, it actually causes us in our, in our like psychology to take the muscle of vulnerability and turn it down and weaken it and diminish it. And that's tragically ironic because vulnerability is one of the things you need to love. To love someone, to extend yourself to risk something to someone and let them in requires massive vulnerability. Without vulnerability, you can't really love. And so shame, it, it diminishes in us the resource we need to love and adore. Our capacity for love shrinks. And not only this, but when we withhold forgiveness, the same dynamic is at work. To forgive someone else requires risk and vulnerability, it requires trust. And when we withhold, we create a dynamic in ourselves, we're actually diminishing our capacity for vulnerability, putting up walls. And do you know what? Those walls aren't gonna magically disappear when we try and love someone. 
It, they shape the kind of person we are. And to be clear, because I think there's some really bad theology out there around forgiving others, uh, forgiving others doesn't mean just ignore all the problems okay, and act like there aren't any, because that's how you forgive in a way that opens you to abuse. What forgiveness means is you take the pain, the cost, the burden, the debt of the wrong that's been done, and you say to someone, I decide to not hold that over you in a, as the thing I'm going to use to try and make us right. I release you from that. Let's work on reconciliation. Forgiveness opens the door to reconciliation, but forgiveness and reconciliation aren't the same thing. I had a really good chat with Heather, who was like we had a PhD in psychology and one in theology. We had a great conversation this week, and at the end of it, we're like, man, we should have recorded this and released it as a podcast because it was really good fun, which we might do. So look out for that on that House of Learning feed. Um, so shame and unforgiveness are both powerful forces that diminish our capacity for love. But look at the transformation this woman experiences, okay? Having received forgiveness, she no longer lives under the prospect of punishment. There's no more fear. She's not afraid. As hard as it was for her to go in that room, less fear is one of the only explanations for why she could do what she did. And she doesn't approach relationships anticipating rejection anymore, which is why she can risk entering the room. And Jesus swells with pride, affirming her, bragging on her. Like she goes from someone who's just like speaking the value and worth out of themselves to someone who's having worth and value spoken into them by Jesus. Man, what a difference that is. And Jesus doesn't reject her. He doesn't try to get her out of the room. He doesn't shoo her out of the room. In fact, he puts her center stage as the honored person in the room. Amazing. And there's nothing she needs to do. She's not trying to like make something right with Jesus. She's been set free to love him, to do these amazing things. She doesn't loathe herself anymore. She's, she's free to become something different. She can rediscover goodness. She can learn to love herself. And she can truly love others using that vulnerability that real relationships require. You'll notice in the midst of this, like some recurring words, love, I've used that word about 400 times already, and freedom. And, and this is really important because God's strategy for redeeming the world involves him creating a people who are capable of great love. That's how God wants to change the world. That's how, that's how God did change the world. He sent a person, Jesus, who incarnated this amazing love. And then he wants to replicate that dynamic. And, and it's a great love, not just in terms of extent, but in terms of kind. It's the kind of love, like we were reading a few weeks ago, that could even make you want to love an enemy, want to be generous to an enemy. Like an amazing love. And this is God's strategy. How on earth are we going to become that? Forgiveness. Forgiveness is key. God wants to forgive us and take all the shame and surgically remove it from our heart so we become the kind of people who are capable of great love. 
You see, forgiveness has the power to make vulnerability a good thing again. When we're forgiven, we get set free from the burdens of our punished identity. And we no longer need to protect ourselves from the potential of people interacting with our shame self. In fact, someone has interacted with her shame self. And you know what they did? They didn't punish her. They generously gave to her. She's safe. She's been made safe by forgiveness. And so she can now go in peace and we as we experience forgiveness can go in peace into our relationships with ourselves, with God, with others. Forgiveness clears the crowd out of the way to make the work of reconciliation actually possible. It enables love. And that's why Jesus' interaction with this woman has so much to do with our becoming like Jesus trajectory, this conversation we're having about how do we become like Jesus. Jesus is God's greatest ever expression of love, and we are called to become like that. This woman nailed it. This woman nailed it. How? Forgiveness. I think this is something God has for us. He wants to draw us into And what he wants to draw us into is receiving forgiveness. Now, I know there's going to be like a theological voice in lots of y'all's heads when I say you need to receive forgiveness, which is like, but I've already accepted Jesus. I've already received forgiveness. Yeah, you have. Okay? But there's, there's a difference between experiencing that freedom and peace and forgiveness in the here and now that would enable you to act like this woman and knowing that like my destiny is forgiven. Because if you belong to Jesus, if you're his, if you've put your faith in him, you know at the resurrection, your name will be found in the book of life. You, like forgiveness is written in like indelible ink in your future. But God has so much more for you than to know that it's potential. It's supposed to be reality. I love the way Molly said it this morning uh, in pre-gathering prayer. Like, we need to metabolize this reality. Like, we need to make it a part of our here and now. And God wants to do that. He has that for us. And I suspect that all of us have room to grow here. Every single one of us. Okay? Think with me for a second. Have you ever had a really, really bad Sunday morning or Saturday night? where you're just like angrily shouting at your roommate or like frustrated and just doing a total parent fail with your kids or like watching something you shouldn't have been watching and you come into church and everyone's singing and it's a moment of beauty and there's a voice in your head that says, it's going to be really hard to join in today. It's going to be really hard to worship and sing these words and not feel a fraud. And so you kind of withhold and feel like, I have to take a step back. That right there is the voice of shame. And we've all, we've all had that voice in our head, right? I'm not the only one. Yeah, you're not a very honest crowd. We've all had that voice in our head, right? You see, this woman was the lowest of lows. Broken, dirty, hated, unclean. But she walked into Jesus' presence and worshipped with a passion and a risk and an exuberance and a generosity 
that I think I've never experienced. I want to be as free as this woman. And if I really understood forgiveness, those Sunday mornings where I want to step back and that voice of shame is in my head, I would turn to Jesus and interact with his offer of forgiveness and probably worship more passionately on those mornings than my baseline. Right? So why doesn't that happen? Why is that so hard? You see, we have this problem where we don't know what to do with our shame. We're supposed to be ashamed of our sin, but you should never, ever be ashamed of bringing it to Jesus because you are guaranteed 100% to know what his response will be. I forgive you. Jesus kept offering it. I I pulled this verse from Mark because I love the way it's phrased here. Jesus, this is Jesus' ministry, his invitation as he kept going around. Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. I love that, the time has come. Like that's as true right now at 11.50 something as it was then. The time has come. Repent, and like a way to think of repentance is to be ashamed of your sin and reject it. Like repentance is to do with shame. But believe is to to trust in trust that sin and that shame and that brokenness to Jesus, to do something with it. And that's what this woman did. And why is it so hard? Why, Why on those mornings can't we take that step? Why does it take such an internal kind of oomph to actually stop shaming ourselves and start worshiping? It's really hard because receiving forgiveness requires vulnerability too. It requires a self-compassion, silencing our inner critic, rejecting our punish identity who wants to reject the gift, our pride that feels like if I earn it, then I don't need to feel shame anymore. And the enemy's at work trying to amplify those voices, but you know what, thanks be to God, the Holy Spirit is at work trying to amplify Jesus' voice and his power stronger. And it's stronger than my voice. There's hope. But it still, it requires vulnerability. What is going to bring those walls down? What's going to bring that prison wall down? I love you. That's what's going to bring it down. It's really, really hard to accept the offer of forgiveness from someone who doesn't love you. Right? But when, when that offer of forgiveness is offered as an I love you, we can trust it. And God loves you so much. Jesus loves you so much. Thankfully, God's given us a demonstration of his love. He came to earth, made himself a human to communicate his love and died on a cross for us. And while he was hanging there, he didn't hang there saying, can't believe I've got to die for you idiots. Right? He hung there saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Even in his most painful moment of bearing the cost it takes to forgive us, there was nothing in his heart that made him feel bad about doing it. For the joy set before him, he went to the cross because he loves you. A hundred percent of the problems in our relationship with God lie with us. And God is gladly willing to pay 100% of that cost to bear it all, 
to make reconciliation a reality because he loves you so much, he is not willing to leave you an alien to intimacy with him. And thankfully, again, we have a way of pulling that reality into the foreground and making it tangible. Because to really believe and entrust ourselves to those words, I love you, I forgive you, is a battle in a culture that is rife with empowering things through shame and fear and guilt. Like this is so countercultural as the people of God to say, we're not going to be that way. We're going to be free and we're going to go free others. And it's this, the bread and the cup. I, I, I appreciate this would be more dramatic if I had a loaf of bread and a cup, but this is practical. This is what we're doing. And what we're going to do this morning is actually take some time and kind of sit in this communion moment as we sort of reflect on this woman and her message and how Jesus wants to affect us today. So would you stand with me? We're going to just take some time, pray, and celebrate communion just a little bit differently today. And so grab the, the bread and the cup and close your eyes and just get comfortable. Jesus, we thank you for how you treated this woman, for the amazing, surprising generosity of your actions to her, of your love for her. Help us to realise that that is how you want to treat us too. Would you speak that truth into our hearts? Would you confront any lie that says anything different? And Father, we acknowledge that voice of shame we have in our head. We acknowledge our pride, all the things that make it hard for us to realise that you are who you say you are, that you right now here are offering full forgiveness, full freedom. Jesus, we repent of those ongoing sins, those ongoing brokennesses that want to cast dirt and shame into our future. We believe you, we entrust those things to you, that you have forgiven those things too. And that your heart is to heal and reconcile and make whole. That those things don't stand against us. We take our ashamedness and offer it to you. First Corinthians 11 says, The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So before we take the bread together, quietly let's thank Jesus for the body broken in order that we might be whole. Letting the weight and the reality of his sacrifice so that we might receive life take root in our heart. Thank you, Jesus.
Thank you, Jesus. Let's take the bread together. And in the same way, scripture says, after he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And when you do this, whenever you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. He poured out his blood to pay the cost of our sin. And he had you in mind up on that cross. all of the sin, past, present, and future. And he made a way for forgiveness and unconditional love to give birth in our hearts through sacrifice, blood shed on the cross. So in the quietness of your heart, let that truth, that reality take root once again. That his blood shed covers us, making us white as snow. Let's take the cup together. So Jesus, as we draw close to you, we know you draw close to us. As we draw this reality close to us, as we stand in this reality, remembering, making it tangible to us here and now, we receive your words. I love you. Jesus loves you. Your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. Thanks for listening. For more resources and to partner with us through giving, visit us at ajesuschurch.org.